thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to bless this time and show us what you would have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Our previous section that we looked at, we saw David bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, didn't quite make it. There's a party atmosphere going on. They're singing, they're dancing. And we have Uzzah reach out and try to steady the Ark that's on a cart where it doesn't belong. And Uzzah dies, and David gets afraid of God and leaves it. <laughs> Chapter 6. Huh? Chapter 6, sorry. We'll make that correction. Chapter 6, verse 12. That's why I get for looking at the wrong chapter heading. All right. That's okay. We're supposed to be in chapter 6. So, chapter 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obadim into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they, they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded in a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with a shout of the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So we're going to stop there for just a moment, and I want to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, because that is another rendition of this, uh, of this uh, event coming up, and... I'm actually going to look at 16 because I don't want to read all these names. <laughs> but in chapter 15, David goes into the city. He's getting ready to take the ark after he's... And in verse 2 it says, none, the none ought to carry the ark of the Lord but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark and minister unto it forever. So David finally goes out and he finds out how you're supposed to carry the ark. And so he went in, he talked, to the, he talked to the priest, found out that the Levites were going to carry it. We go through a whole list of names for the, for the uh, various Levites that are going to do it and what they're going to do and, and who was assigned instruments to play and, and all of that. And then in verse 14 it says, So the priest and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring the ark of the Lord to, of God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with staves thereon, and Moses, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And David spoke to the chief of the Levites and appointed their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalters, and harps, and cymbals, and sounding by lifting up the voices in joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and his brethren, Asaph, and some of Berechiah, and the sons of Merabai, the sons of Ethan, and Kerabesh. And we're going to skip past some of these names. And uh, verse 25, And David and the elders of Israel and the captains of the thousands went to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord from the house of Obadam with joy. And it came to pass that, that when God helped the Levites that were, bear the Ark of the Covenant, that 
the Lord that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams, and David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and all the Levites that bear the ark, and the singers, and the and Shinaiah, the master of the song, with the singers, and David also had upon him an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant with shouting and with sound of the cornet and trumpets and cymbals, making a loud noise with the psalteries and harps. And it came to pass as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the city that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looking out the window, saw King Saul dancing and playing and despised him in her heart. There's a more full detail. I just so David finally looked and said, okay, God struck Uriah, or excuse me, um, um, yeah, what's his name? Abinadab, no, Uzzah, <laughs> struck Uzzah dead. I knew Uriah wasn't the right name. <laughs> struck him dead because he reached out and David feared God because of it. So this time when he says, okay, Abinadab is being blessed. He's being blessed because God's presence is in his in his home because he has the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, even though they didn't fully believe that God existed in one place, they did believe that God sat on the mercy seat and that when he ministered to the people, he was present at the mercy seat. Now, this is kind of a very strange thing because they understood that God was everywhere, omnipresent. But yet at the same time, they had this picture of God sitting in the temple on the mercy seat. And it was true. When he came down on the, on the, when the tabernacle was constructed and built, God filled it and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the bright presence of God just glowed over the tabernacle such that nobody could go anywhere near it. They were afraid to go near it because it was so bright and magnificent because God literally let his glory sit on it. And the people struggled. And we've got to understand and it's something we don't fully understand and appreciate because we don't live in an age of idolatry. But in their day, you pretty much, you worshiped something. You focused on something. And for the Jews, their focus was on the tabernacle. And many of them did lift the tabernacle up almost to idol status. That's where God's at. We're worshiping. And they literally worshiped the tabernacle almost more than they did God. And when they had the temple, it was the same problem. They would worship the temple. And for generations after the temple was built, the people go, we can never lose this Jerusalem because this is where God's temple is and God lives in the temple, so therefore we will never lose Jerusalem. And all the way up until the time that Jerusalem was conquered and sacked by Nebuchadnezzar, they were fully, absolutely sure. In spite of what all the prophets said, God's going to destroy this people because of your sin. He's going to destroy it because of the sin, and the temple's going to be destroyed. Or we'll never lose the temple. All right? And that's what they would be because the temple had become their idol. Literally had become their idol. When Eli and his sons get ready for battle, and remember that's when the, temp the, the Ark of the Covenant first disappeared and into battle, they go, we're going to send God's presence into battle, and God's presence is there. We cannot lose because God is with us. And the ark was looked at as a magic emblem in one sense. You know, we're going to send the presence of God in, and because his presence is here, we cannot lose the battle. 
And this is something that we need to be very careful. I've seen Christians even elevate the word of God, the literal word of God, the Bible, to that point where it becomes an idol. All right? What do you do with an old Bible? Nope, can't, can't destroy it, can't throw it away. I mean, it's falling apart. The pages are falling out, it's, but can't get rid of it because it is it, the book itself, not the words on the page, but the book itself becomes an idol. Uh, well, that's a different story altogether. I understand that one. Not wanting to get rid of them because the notes in it is, a, is one thing. But to say the book itself is, is, is what's important is very dangerous and you're really bordering on idolatry. All right? And I've seen that happen with, with sanctuaries and churches. People, this is, God's, this is God's house. And I understand what they mean by that, but they, goes, they take it so far that, well, got to be very careful what we do there. And, you know, we'd never want to raise the stuff that God gives us to this idolatry status. And in this case, they're really dangerously close to that. <laughs> All right? But they're happy. God is returning to where he's supposed to be. Okay, now God was always there, <laughs> but the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and it's supposed to be unseen by the people. Once a year, one person gets to see the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and that's the high priest when he puts the blood of, the, of Rosh Hashanah, the blood of the sacrifice for atonement of sins, on the mercy seat. Very different. The burning of incense happened in the holy place. In the holy place, they went every day to minister. And that would be where the showbread was kept, the menorah was kept there, and the, the uh, incense altar was in there. And they ministered to there. They had to refill the menorah and the incense altar every day with fresh oil. But once a year, they would go in behind the curtain and the blood of the uh, sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin was placed upon the mercy seat. And so that was done once a year. Um, Jesus, when he died, then performed the, the office of high priest because he went before the Father with his blood and presented it to the Father in heaven and said, here is my blood shed for the sin of people, for the world, and put his, his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. The real mercy seat, not the copy. Uh, and so this is why he told Mary not to touch him before the resurrection. He says, I have not yet completed, completed my task. She wanted to hug him and hold him and, and keep him. And he goes, no, you know, because the high priest was not to be touched until he had performed his sacrifice. And then he was able to come back and be touched afterwards uh, because he was the high priest at that point. And this is what Peter tells us. We have a high priest who is... You know, we don't have a high priest who's not touched by our infirmity because Jesus is our high priest. He's also a king, all right? So he's king, high priest, and judge. So he brings all the, all the aspects of ruling government together. And here we see David, he's dressed in an ephod, which is the garment of a priest, all right? Now, he's not offering sacrifice, but he is on the ephod, and the ephod is that linen garment that is carried on there. So they go, and they David, and the reason I read, read you know, in, in Chronicles is because it brings a more fuller aspect than this does. Now, huh? Does say oh, yeah, he does sacrifice. He does tell how much he sacrificed, like Chronicles did. Yeah. 
Well, I don't think he personally did the sacrifice. <laughs> he caused to be sacrificed. Because David is not authorized to sacrifice. But in this case, it, it, it was said that you sacrificed when you brought your sacrifice to the temple and the offering was made. It was your sacrifice and you made a sacrifice even though the priests are the ones that actually did the work. Your hands would be placed on it and all, and all, the, and all that aspect. So here we see David's told that it happened and then, and then it says David went and brought the ark of the house and then as we read in Chronicles, he did it right this time. He went to the priest and said, okay, uh, what, how, are we, you know, how are we supposed to carry this? And I think he, in the back of his mind, he knew that he, he probably remembered some of the stories. And one of the things we've got to understand about that time frame was Bibles were not proliferated as they are today. Uh, with the printing press and all the stuff we have, everybody has a Bible. Under the Jewish mentality, and this is part of where the Catholics got their idea that the Bibles were not to be handed to everybody. It was for the priest, for the priest to read, and not and not for everybody to read. The Jewish family, you know, would write a copy of the scriptures, and it was kept at the temple. And they did pretty much what the, the Catholics did. They would write little excerpts out of it and send it out to be taught by. Levites and the Levites would study and they would carry these excerpts out. Now the only other person who was ever supposed to have a copy of the Bible directly given to them was the king. And in the Pentateuch it said that when, they, when there was a king, the king was to write out his own copy of the Bible and keep it. Now there were no provisions against making copies of the Bible. Okay, There were no provisions against it. But in practice they didn't make copies of the Bible. And why there's so few of them is because when they, would re, when they would make a copy of the Bible, they would do all their mathematic checks and everything that they would look at because each of the number, letters had math uh, numbers attached to it and they were able to check to make sure every line was right and every page was right. And once it was right, they destroyed the old copy. And that's how valuable the word of God was to them. All right, so they never wanted more than one. They never wanted an improper. If, they, if there was mistakes in it, the new copy was burnt and destroyed, and they would also get rid of the old copy. So this is why there's so few of them, and it was not a habit of them for people to get the Bible. Now, it wasn't forbidden. There's nothing in there that says it was forbidden, and David obviously had done some study in the Word of God, which means that he probably was one of the few kings that actually wrote a copy of it, but he seems to also have understood the, the word even before that. People could get into it. They would synagogues, you know, later on the synagogues would have copies of it. And it's quite an amazing thing. If you go to a synagogue, they go to a cabinet. At one point in the, in the service, the Jews will go to, the, the Hebrews will go to the cabinet in front of the synagogue, make a great big ceremony of opening up a cabinet, and inside is a great big scroll that is covered with a, with a cloth or, or leather of some sort. And they would parade it up one aisle and around the, around the synagogue. And everybody worships and reaches out to it. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see. Uh, on one side, I'm going, OK, it's almost like an idol to them. And yet it was great honor to the word of God. And I had very mixed feelings as I'm 
as I was watching this. And one time I went to the synagogue, and you know, because it was great honor, but also bordering on <laughs> idolatry toward it, because it was the thing that everybody was worshiping, and not necessarily the words. And I not, I had to be careful because I don't know what they're. I can only judge what I saw, because they're all reaching out to it and all this. And it's like, okay, honor or idol. And I was very mixed. And then it was go up to the front. They would ceremonially take off the cover on it. They would unroll it. And whoever's turn it was to read it would read the, read the appropriate thing with their little silver pen to mark it, because nobody was allowed to touch it with their fingers, so they run, they run this little silver pointer across it, and then they roll it back up, cover it back up, and ceremonially march it back to the, the cabinet, put it away and lock it, and then the uh, rabbi would start speaking uh, on it. So here we see the same thing. The Ark of the Covenant is becoming the big thing. All right, this is the focus. And I'm not saying they're not worshiping God, but it is the ark is becoming the focus. And this is a scary, scary, very, they're walking a fine line here between a worship of an idol and worshiping of the God that it represents. And this is, this is something that's very interesting. Uh, if you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they sinned against God and he sent serpents in to bite, the, bite, bite them and kill them. Moses was told to make a brass serpent and to put it up on a, up on a, a pole so that if people would look at it, they would be saved. And we find out later in the New Testament that that was a picture of Jesus being lifted up for the sins of the, you know, sins of the world and if people look at him, he would get saved, they would get saved. Now, <coughs> Over time, the people started worshiping the brazen serpent. And uh, I think it's jo uh, Josiah ends up, one of the things he destroys when he destroys the idols, idols out there, he destroyed the bronze serpent because people were worshiping the bronze serpent because, well, gee, it was very powerful. Look what it did. It healed, it healed people. So it, you know, and this is something we need to be very careful. We, and this is why it's hard for human beings to worship God. It really is. How do you worship something you don't see? You know, we know that he's there. We know that he's present. But what do we focus on when we worship him? And we as Christians have to be careful that we're not worshiping the cross. We're not worshiping the sacrifice necessarily. The actual sacrifice, the, what the sacrifice means is fine. We're not worshiping the word, you know, the, the Bible itself. And it's a very fine line between worshiping God and having an idol and saying, okay, God, I just, oh, wow, God, I've got, I, I got your word. You know? <laughs> or, or a cross. You know, we're going to need to be very careful. Or an altar. I've seen, especially in very charismatic churches, the altar itself where people go to pray almost becomes an idol for many of them. You know, I can't pray unless I'm right here. Uh, my, my prayers are special. If I, if I offer them right here, they're, they're special. God really hears them when I'm in church or at the altar. And we've got to be careful to not lift anything up to that idol st status. And because we need to be focused on God. And God is so important and it is real easy to shift our focus to something. 
because we as humans like to see something, which is why idols are so easy to, okay, God, I, I, right there, I, I see it. And we need to be very careful that we're not worshiping the thing, we're worshiping the creator. And this happens over and over, and I've seen it. And I'm not saying people even consciously do it, okay? Again, I've seen people raise, and believe me, I've, the word of God is very important to me. I, you know, it's everything to me, but not the literal book. It is the words on the book. The cross is important to me, but not the cross itself, but what happened on the cross where Jesus died for our sins after living a perfect life and dying on the sins and then being raised from the dead. Okay? I've seen people that have gone to Israel and they've gone to the, temp, you know, to the tomb and they grab a rock from the tomb you know, and that rock becomes so special to them that they focus on the rock. You know, and it's like, no, get away from there. Yeah, that's, yeah this, tomb, you know, this rock came from the tomb. Okay, great, that's, that's fine, but wow, it's just so special. I've got a rock from the tomb of Jesus. Okay, so what? You know, so what? You know, uh, it's a rock. Uh, don't, you know, so we want to be very careful because, again, it is very easy to step over the line and worship the thing instead of the God behind the thing. And it really is because we as humans want that. We want to see something. It's much easier to worship what we see and what we can hear. And we want to be very careful about this. And then it says, and when they had gone six paces in verse 13 of 2 Samuel, uh, that they would have gone, he offered sacrifice of oxen and fatlings, and we read in Chronicles that that was seven of each. So you've got to picture this. Every six steps, they have to put the, you know, either they have to just stand there with it on their shoulders while they offer, offer 14 animals, According to here, wow. according to this, every six every six paces. Well, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and we see this oftentimes. Solomon's going to offer, you know, a bunch of animals when the tabernacle and the temple gets built. But you're you're right, and this is something you want to be aware of. The Jews are wanting the temple to be reestablished and the blood to flow, which is so hard for anybody in our day and age to even fathom. Uh, when Cortez went into to Central America and saw the blood flowing down from the temples from human sacrifice, he got so angry at the, at the number one, human sacrifice and the, and the idol worship that he went a little crazy and, he, and destroyed the Aztecs, but, you know, because of his, but he did it because of his worship for God, you know, and he's just, he was so intense that he went went nuts. Cortez. And Cortez gets a bad rap, you know, he destroyed them, he was trying to go after them. No, his, you know, in his diary he goes that he was so sickened by the human sacrifice that he was trying to defend God. You know, right, right reason, wrong, wrong action like David did, you know, bringing the cart down in the first half of this chapter, you know, he's, did, it, did the right thing the wrong way and ended up with the wrong activity. Cortez did the same thing. You know, right activity, trying to evangelize and bring them to God, wrong way, you know, and now he's criticized, you know, for other reasons. 
but you know, it, it really gets to be something that if we need to be careful because it is so easy to do the, the wrong thing for, the, you know, for what we think are the right reasons and end up with a bad testimony. And that's so easy to do. And even in this, you know, David is honoring God. He, they're offering sacrifices. And I really don't know how they burnt these sacrifices <laughs> all, you know, every, every few paces. Uh, but they're, they're offering all these sacrifices, which means they're either building one big altar you know, ahead of themselves, a little place, and, and offering you know, steps. Uh, and it could be that he offered one every six steps and then offered, an, you know, I don't know on exactly, because it, a lot, not a lot of detail here. And when you combine the two together, we just know that he offered a lot of animals. Okay, a lot of animals on this walk to Jerusalem. And then it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded in a linen ephod. And that linen ephod is the garment of the Levites and the, and the priests that they worked in. So he is dressed as a priest at this point. And it says he's dancing, and, and we looked in Chronicles, and we saw that they're playing all these instruments. I mean, this is a party you know, atmosphere going on. They're offering sacrifices. They are enjoying God. God is coming back into their presence in a very practical way. Uh, they're forgetting that he's omnipresent in the first place, but let's, we'll, we'll excuse that at the moment for them. Because I've also seen that there are a lot of people that will have a lot more fun when they're in church and worshiping God in the right environment than they will outside of church. And this is something that really we need to be careful of. We need to enjoy God. You know, we need to enjoy God wherever we're at. And I do understand. It's, you know, there's a different feeling. When I'm in church with other Christians, there is a different experience because we are with each other. We're able to encourage one another. And there's a lot more freedom. But I'm going to sing to God. I'm going to enjoy God no matter where I'm at. But I understand. You know, there is a focus. You know, when you're in church with, you're with others, there is a focus. So I don't want to be too, too dogmatic there, but we can also raise that up to an idol. Because I've seen people that, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm here worshiping God. Well, how much time are you spending worshiping God elsewhere? Okay. Uh, and they're having a great time. And David is dancing, and he's worshiping God. He is worshiping God with all his strength. And this dancing literally is ecstatic whirling and twirling around. I mean, uh, he might have been in an athletic event the way he's, <laughs> he's talking, you know, the way it's described. Uh, he's spinning and twirling and all these things, and he's enjoying, he's enjoying just worshiping God. And I think it's important for us to understand, and this is why, you know, I say so often, as long as somebody's worshiping God, I really don't care what they're doing. Now, if they're trying to draw attention to themselves, and you can tell when somebody's just trying to draw attention to themselves and when they're really, truly worshiping. If they're worshiping, have fun. You know, it takes us to that movie we start, you know, saw the first one. Where he's running around the church, you know, and it's, you know, and that's our church isn't designed there. You're not going to run around our church, you know, it's not going to happen. Uh, but if somebody's jumping up and down and, and, and worshiping God, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not going to have any problem with it. You know, and David is just, he's, he's uh, really going to it. Okay. And then we see here in verse uh, 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the, of the Lord with shouting 
and with the sound of the trumpet, and here it leaves out all the other instruments. You know, and so some people would then tell you, well, see, there's a contradiction between these, these. No, this one just doesn't go into the full detail of everything. This is just a quick summary, because this one doesn't tell why David went to, you know, got the priest and how many priests and how many people are here. This is just a quick summary. It's not a contradiction. There's no contradiction there. It's just, it was relevant to the story, the summary. All right? And so he's bringing it, and... Israel is there, and you can picture the parade. Now, this is a big parade going on with singing and dancing and music and celebrations. And then in verse 16, And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him or regarded him with contempt. Now this is kind of an interesting statement because Michael looks through the window and we know that she loved David because she was very happy to be his wife and, and encouraged it. She looks out and she sees her husband the king acting very undignified in her mind. You know, he is not regal. He is not being playing the king. And in her mind, that's a big deal. Okay? What do we have in our biggest criticism in our country right now? Our president is not acting pre presidential half the time. Now, whether that's right or wrong is not what my point, but the same accusations being leveled at him as Michael levels at King David. Well, David, you, where, where's your royal garments? Where's your, where's your crown? And David is worshiping the king of the universe, the god of the universe, the king of the universe, and enjoying it, and humbling himself in front of the king of the universe, and she, all she sees is, you know, and we're going to see deeper as we get into this chapter what she sees, but, you know, she, she was, her father was Saul, the first king. And, you know, Saul had a very humble beginning, but he got very arrogant toward the end and didn't want to lose. In Saul's life, he would never be out there jumping around and, and in, the, in an ephod and, and uh, just worshiping God because he was much too important to, to do all of this. Yeah, well, he had his fits too, but that's a different story altogether. But, you know, she looked at it and said, you know, my, my dad was regal. My dad would never come out and do this. David, what kind of man are you out there? You know, in an ephod, just a linen, linen garment, jumping around and drawing attention to yourself. You know, you are being very undignified, David. And it's a problem for her. You know, and you're right, it embarrassed her. You know, David, you're not being, you're not being very regal. And you're making me look bad because I am your wife. Yeah, Saul's, daughter. Uh, Saul's daughter, you know, your wife, and and you're drawing attention to yourself, and you're, and you know, how how do you think that makes me feel? And that's kind of a good point I hadn't really thought about. How how do you think I feel? You know, if you're so undignified, what are people going to think about me? You know, and this is where we really get in trouble is when we start thinking about, you know, when we start putting the me and the I in there, we've got a problem, and Michael is right there. She somehow is feeling that she's being made undignified 
by what David is doing as he worships God. Again, we go back to our movie. The family was feeling that they were being embarrassed because of his way he worshiped God. You know, and we, you know, and it's really easy to do. You know, I've seen it over and over where somebody just feels that you know they get embarrassed by somebody else's worship, and it's like, why? You don't feel comfortable with it? Don't do it. <laughs> but don't judge them for worshiping that way. You know, now, if they're not worshiping, they're trying to draw us attention, then we've got a whole other issue altogether. But David's just worshiping God. And she looks out at him and says, what, you know, and it really, it says despised here, but it literally means she regarded him with contempt. You know, almost a hatred. How could you be doing such a thing? You know, in verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in the place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of the offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord God of hosts. He dealt among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women, as, as well to the women as men. And, and to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine so that all the people departed, everyone to his house. And, and this is wonderful. David brought the ark into, into Jerusalem. He had already set up the tabernacle, the tent of the tabernacle. They put the ark into the, into the Holy of Holies, done correctly this time with the Levites taking it in, closing down the, the curtain so that nobody could see it anymore. And even though it doesn't tell us that, we know that's what happened. And David made burnt offerings, offerings, and peace offerings before the Lord. And this doesn't mean he personally sacrificed it, but he presented them. And remember, burnt offerings were a sign of total dedication between for God and the person, and then the peace offering, it was that offering that was literally to enjoy. When you offered a Thanksgiving and peace offering, you, it, it was your party with God that we talked about a long time ago. And it says, and David made an end to all the offerings and the peace offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of, of hosts. David pronounced a blessing. Now this is kind of unusual. David is produced, playing the part of a priest at this point. But David is called a priest. In the New Testament, he's called a priest. He spoke, you know, he spoke with that kind of blessing, even though he wasn't of the house of, house of Aaron. He was put into that position where God said, okay, David, you love me enough that I'm going to let you represent me. And he blesses the people. And that blessing probably was the blessing of, you know, may God shine upon you and as you go out. And then, very interesting, it says, he dealt or assigned among the people even the whole multitude of Israel. And then this very interesting point, as well as the women to the, as, uh, and to the women as men. Which means he elevated the women and gave them a portion. And this is a very unusual statement. Even in Jesus' time, this didn't happen, you know, when... When Jesus fed the multitude, we know that women and children ate in, that, in, those, in the food, in there, but when it was counted, it's 3,000 men, 5,000 men. Why? 
because women were property back then. They, 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 weren't even, you know, they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. And yet David's lifting them up and saying, women, here, we're going to give you, we're going to give you the, same por the same portion in this, not even, not even a reduced portion. And this is lifting them up because he is just so excited about what God is doing. And it says he gave to every one of them a cake of bread, and that could be figs in, some, in, in the way it looks at, a good piece of flesh or a big piece of meat, and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to their house. He spent the entire day with his parade and his party attitude, and he blessed everybody. Huh? Then he goes well, we're going to get to that, yeah. With, well, Michael gets in trouble, but he, he catches, catches it from her. But here he's saying, everybody is blessed. Everybody. You know, and this is, this is the thing about this, everything we look at. Were every single one of these people Jews? Probably not. But it says every man and to every woman. So I believe David just gave it to anybody. Anybody who wanted it was lined up and, and, got, and got this blessing. You know, and we think about that. That's, you know, how expensive was that to, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people, you know, 30,000? I don't know. We don't know how big this was, but that's a lot of food being distributed. And David's just generous and says, just give it to everybody. Feed them. You know, we're, gonna, we're going to slaughter off a whole bunch of cows and a bunch of bulls, and, and uh, we're going to feed the whole multitude. And I love the way that it, it even notes, and women got it as well. You know, this is when, when God blesses, all receive the blessing. And this is why it's so important. You know, even in the New Testament, we see that God has lifted up women. Jesus dealt with women all over the place, and that was very unusual. You know, the testimony of his resurrection went first to a woman which is one of the things that tell us that it's a true story because if it was a false story that the disciples were writing and they were trying to impress people, it would have been one of them that got the news immediately about Jesus being resurrected because the woman couldn't give testimony. You know, it would have made no sense if it was a false story for them to say, yeah, uh, Mary, Mary saw him first. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't, that would not have been part of the story if it was false. If they were trying, if they were trying to impress people, it would have been, yeah, one of us, one of us were the first one to do it. Because people are looking at you, know, and we don't understand it. In our day and age, we really don't understand how weird that was for the woman to be the first one to see Jesus being resurrected and be the one that gives testimony. Which is why they ran real quick to make sure that it was true. Because they needed a male to verify this. You know? uh, because a woman wouldn't have been able to give that testimony. And here, David is honoring everybody. He said, God's here, we're gonna bless everybody. Here you go. Everybody's receiving this blessing. And this is David and his generous, mo generous mo motive right now. He is just in a frame of worshiping God. Yeah, great time, worshiping God. Verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today! Who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants 
as one of the vain failures shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord which chose me before your father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of people of the Lord over Israel therefore will I play before the Lord and I will yet be more vile than this and will be base in, your, in my own sight and in, the, and in the maid servants which you have spoken of of them shall I be hailed in honor therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no children until the day of her death so we see here he gets home he's been having a great time He's been having fun. He's blessed everybody. He's been worshiping God. And Michael comes to him and says, and, you know, this is very sarcastic. You know, uh, it wasn't, you know, oh, oh, what a wonderful job. You, you know, how glorious was the, was the king of Israel today? It was like, oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today? <laughs> you know, uh, who uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaidens, his servants, and what, as one of the vain fellows uncovering himself. You know, I think she's a little jealous. You know, she's a little jealous because the women have been paying attention to her husband. You know, he's whirling and dancing and, you know, obviously still in the prime of his life. You know, he's, he's very attractive still. And he's out there worshiping God. And she gets a little jealous. He's not being regal. He's not being, he's not being kingly. And as far as she's saying, you know, nobody should see you. Nobody should have seen you like that. That's my territory and yours only. But again, they are not in that same place. Michael comes from royalty. All right. Um, one of the other wives is, is from royalty. So she might have also had this, but she's not the one that criticizes him. And you've got to remember that she does like him. She, she is the one that volunteered to become his bride when, when Saul cheats David of his wife okay he brings the foreskins in he's supposed to be married to the eldest daughter and Saul says no you can't have her Michael ends up getting him and every indication says that she loves him and and David loves her so there's there's actual love between them yeah she, she lied for him she's willing to do things for David that you know so there appears to be love in their relationship so some of it I think is jealousy some of it is David you know my father lost it because of his you know, things he did, you know, you've got to be kingly. You could lose, you could lose this. And I think and part of it was motivation, you know, is correct in, in her judgment, but yet incorrect in how, you know, because we've got to be careful. And you know, we look at something and say, wow, this doesn't appear to be good, but we've got to be so careful about what we, what we judge and what we say. Because if we stand in judgment of somebody, there's a consequence for that judgment. And so we need to be very careful. And I've heard lots of people, well, it's my job to judge, you know, we're told to, to judge fruit. Well, that's one thing. Judging fruit is one thing. But to judge the person because of, the, because of it is a very, very dangerous place. And I've said it over and over. I don't look at these people that when I hear somebody is, is fallen into adultery, some big evangelist or televangelist or pastor has fallen into adultery, I'm going to pray for them. I'm not judging them for that activity because... Who knows how hard it was and how long Satan attacked them before they fell. I might have fallen a whole long time before they, before they did, so I want to be very careful about judging people, and I want to be very careful because David said it over and over. He was not going to touch God's anointed. Saul was anointed king. David is anointed king. I mean, for all practicalities, David's anointed king. He could have gone out to war with, with Saul, but he's going, no. 
when God is ready for me to be king, God will remove Saul from the, from the picture and make me king. I want to be very careful that I don't touch anybody that God has anointed, including his, his children. And this is something that I learned a long time ago. Each individual in, in, is in Christ Jesus is part of the bride of Christ. I don't want to be touching the bride of Christ. Because husbands get a little jealous when their bride is, you know, criticized. Whether it's, whether it's right or not becomes irrelevant. They get a little jealous if their wife is, is attacked. And I want to be very careful about that. Now, having said that, there are times when you say, you know, you have to go in with love and, ex you know, express to somebody, you know, you're really damaging the testimony of Christ, but make sure, as I've said, that you're doing it in prayer and in love. If you're not praying for somebody, you have no business even going in and trying to correct them. And Michael is obviously not being in prayer at this point in time. Uh, all she sees is her husband out there, and she just sees him being undignified and unkingly, and she criticizes him. You know, <laughs> criticizes him? I'm going to say flat out attacks him. <laughs> you know, and he's coming home, and he's in a good spirit. Having said that, it's very important that when you're in a very spiritual high, you've come from a nice meeting, and you've been... You've been having a series of meetings. You went out to a you know, women's retreat or a men's retreat, and you come back, and you're just so excited. Somebody is going to try to, tear, try to tear you down. It just is an automatic. This is Michael's job in this picture. You know, not that it's right, but she's the one Satan is trying to use to drag David down. David, I know you're on a spiritual high. You're, you're on the mountaintop. I want you down here in the valley with me. And how dare you go up on the mountain, and I'm, I'm left behind. And she, again, she's not thinking in those terms. And the people who try to tear us down are not thinking in those terms. All they're thinking is, you know, I'm not as happy as you are, and, I, and you should be miserable like me. You know, misery likes comfort, or at least knowing that other people are just as miserable as they are. I think there's a lot of jealousy here. And the women are liking, are paying attention to my husband. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not, and I don't have the same religion, you know, the same excitement about God. So there's multiple levels of jealousy here. I'm thinking she's jealous because he's worshiping the Lord, not her. Yeah, I don't even know if she recognizes that he's worshiping God. Yeah, oh yeah, it's the handmaidens, you know, uh, they've noticed you, uh, and they've noticed you for things that you're not supposed to notice, and you were almost saying you were in your underwear, you know, out there, you know, and, and how dare you. Because he wasn't in his regal robes. He wasn't in even the dress. He's in the robes of a priest worshiping God. And he's, he's enjoying worshiping God. And David's answer, you know, verse 22, is, is, I will be yet more vile. And this word for vile is the whole idea of uh, humble and low. Okay, he says, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, put on airs. I'm a nobody, I know I'm a nobody, and just putting on this regal garments and everything is not what I'm doing. He goes, I'm going to be more vile than you than that, and I will be more base. Again, this whole idea of humility. And in your in my own sight and of the maidens which you have spoken of, of them I shall be held in honor. And this is kind of an interesting thing. He's saying you know, you're, you're putting me down because I'm worshiping God. The people out there have enjoyed this. And, of course, he fed them all, <laughs> which made them really happy, too. And he's going, you think this is a big deal? You know, 
And in her mind, the king had to have a high standard. And this is something we need to be very careful of trying to make people think that we're something. And that was her mindset. You know, you're a king. You can't, you can't be a regular person. And if you've ever watched any kind of show or something, you know, there is this expectation and there is, still is to this day. If you're a king or the royal family, you have to behave just so. You're not a regular person. You have high standards. The new princess that just got married in England has gotten herself into all kinds of trouble because she keeps violating the royal standards and she keeps getting, you know, the queen and many of them are unhappy with her because she's not appearing royal. Okay? Uh, many people in America are unhappy with Trump because he doesn't appear the way they think a president should appear. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just what happens. And Michael's telling David, uh, you know, you're not, you're not acting like a king and these people are seeing you as a regular, normal person. And David's saying, that's who I am before God. I'm just a regular, normal person before God. And if they see me that way, fine, because that's all that I am. And I think it's very important that we see people and we're real. Because people don't like to see fakeness. And that's part of the problem people do have with royalty even today. They know they're fake. That's when, and when we look at politicians, we know that in most part they're fake. They, they're putting on a false face for everybody to see. Michael wanted a false face on David. And David's saying, no, I am before God what I am. And if people see that, great. And David was a humble man most of the time. He had his problems with pride, and we've seen many of those. And we're also going to see times when he just is a very humble man. And this is one of those times where he's just humble before God and celebrating God. And the penalty for Michael, therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. This is a big deal in that day and age. To be married and not have any children was a huge deal. Especially for the king. Yeah, especially for the king. And, other, and all the other wives are having kids. She has no children. Why? Consequence of her sin. She judged David. She judged his worship. She judged everything about him. And God put a punishment upon her of no children. And this is something that I have seen this over and over. David says, don't touch God's anointed. He knew that if he killed Saul and took it on his own to take over for Saul, that there would be some kind of consequence. Now, and he sees consequences in other parts of his life. We need to be careful because to touch an anointed, this is why I'm not going to touch these men of God that fall into sin. It's not my job. Number one, it's not my church to even look at them. And I'm not their friend, and I'm not praying for them, so it's not my job to go out and say, you know, hey, what, what, what did you do? You know, look at the testimony you, you drugged. God. God is more than able to protect his testimony. More than able to. And he's going to work that person. He's gonna, they're, maybe they're going to repent and be restored. Maybe they're not going to repent. But it's between them and God. Now, if I was a personal friend with them and, and working with them, then I'd be praying with them, talking with them, encouraging them, working them into repentance and restoration. But that's a different story altogether because that's who I am. I want them to see them restored through repentance. Here's a case where obviously Michael never repents. 
All she ever sees is David being unkingly in front of the people and never repents. Remember we talked about Moses never repenting for his bitterness and anger toward the people. And always from that day on, he kept saying, it's your fault that I'm not going into the, Promise. the promised land. I truly believe that he had, if he had just repented of his sin, God would have said, fine, you can go into it. But God knew that he wasn't going to repent and said, nope, you're not going into the promised land. Exactly like Michael. Yeah, they're, they're the same. They were both the same. They touched, they touched something they're not supposed to touch and were not repentant. God will forgive our sins because of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. But there's a consequence for our sins still. And without repentance, there's no way that we're going to have the consequence pulled away. With repentance, we may or may not have that consequence pulled away. Without repentance, there's no way that consequence is going to be pulled away. And I've seen God do both. You know, Paul was told, you know, my grace is sufficient when he kept asking for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And we don't know what that thorn was. Okay, we don't know if it was a consequence or a sin or a sin that was besetting to him or, or punishment for, you know, having crucified, you know, persecuted Christians. We don't know what it is. But he understood. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't worry about it. And, but the most important thing is 1 John 1, 9 says... You know, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That is not for salvation and going to heaven. It is for our restoration of our relationship with Jesus. Okay, and God, we do not lose our salvation. That verse is used a lot by those who say you can lose your salvation, that you've got to confess him so that you can have your salvation back. No. We're saved. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus. He's never lost any of, his, any of those that follow him. We have eternal life, which is permanent. We can get out of fellowship with him, but we're not going to lose our salvation. And 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, say the same thing about it. It is sin, God. I, I have sinned. I've disobeyed you. And then we are brought back into fellowship and communion with him and that tightness of our relationship why? Because when we don't confess our sins, we know that our sin stands before God. And every time we get near God, we read the word, we worship, we're with other Christians, our sin stands up and gets in our way and keeps us from being able to fully be in fellowship with him. And God is distant. He, 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 we feel distance, and most of it is ours. If we just confess our sin, he'll say, fine, we're back into fellowship. And it's very important Michael never, never confesses. Moses never confessed and repented of his sin. So many places we see that people do not repent of their sin. We look at Jonah. Jonah never repents of his sin as far as we see in, in the scripture. You know, he, he led a great revival. You know, tens of thousands of people get, get converted or saved in our language. And he is so angry that God forgives them because he's out of fellowship. And, God, and he never shows us and states that he, that he repented. You know, we need to be careful to, to repent and because otherwise there's a consequence and that repentance and lack of repentance leads to a long-term punishment. And that long-term punishment 
is pretty severe. In this case, Michael doesn't have any children. And again, that's a big, in our day and age, it's like, well, who cares, you know? Her day and age, not having a child when you were married, you know, to anybody. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a child and you're married, that was a big deal. Yeah, because that's mostly what women were for. Well, that's what, yeah. You know, you know, you're just a piece of property anyway, so you're supposed to give me some sons, you know, so that I can have, can have more kids, you know. So that was, you know. But it was also, that was the duty of the wife, you know, to procreate. And she's not able to do that. And we see that Sarah has trouble. We see, you know, uh, Rachel having trouble. We see Elizabeth having that problem. We see, you know, all through the scriptures that these women prayed to God for a child because God loved them. And most of the world was looking at them saying, yeah, Hannah, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? Why is God judging you, not giving you any children? Yeah. Uh, and that was literally what would be said to them. You must be judging. You must be an awful, terrible person for God to be judging you. People would judge them, you know, and this is why it is really hard. You know, they needed to be encouraged and prayed for and loved, and yet people would judge them and criticize them. Here we see Michael getting judged because she dared judge. And God is very clear. Judge not lest you be judged. By what measure you judge, you shall be judged. Okay, and that's Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. You've got to include that second part of that verse. Because the Bible does not say judge not. It says, by what measure you judge, you shall be judged. And our measure needs to be the word of God. All right? If I'm saying what you're doing is sin according to the Bible, a lot of people call that judging. No, I'm just telling you what God I'm not judging you or not judging you. I'm just telling you what you're doing is sin. And if you don't like that, that's not my problem. I want to be judged by what the word of God says. And I'll... And I know that I've got plenty of sin in my life. I'm going to be the first to admit it, you know, and everybody knows, you know, there's a sin, there's a sin, there's a sin, and we know that. And if we try to pretend we're perfect, we're lying to everybody. And the problem with many who believe that you can lose your salvation is they're trying to pretend that they're perfect or that they're always on their knees asking for forgiveness and asking Christ back in their heart. And Michael suffers because she dared to judge the way David was worshiping. We need to be careful. We need to be careful when we look at others. Don't like the way they're doing? Pray for them. <laughs> you know, pray for them. If they're doing it wrong, God, would, God will change them. If you're judging it wrong, he'll change you. And I've said this over and over. A lot of times when I pray for somebody, God changes me more than he changes them. And I know that he changes them as well. But my attitude is gets changed when I pray for somebody. And so we look at this and say, worship. Worship God. Be worshiping him. And don't judge others for the way they're worshiping him. <laughs> and this is why I, you know, why I said I'm very careful when I look at some of these things. And you know, when I looked at the way they worshiped around the, tabernacle, uh, the, the, the synagogue and, and looked like idolatry to me, you know, I can't judge what they were doing because many of them were really worshiping. It looked funny to me because I was an outsider. You know, here, Michael looks at David and says, you know, I would never worship God that way, so you, you were wrong, David. And a very dangerous place to be. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. We ask you to bless us, guide us, lead us, teach us what you would have us to see. And Lord, teach us to be less judgmental of others and, and pray more for others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.